So we're in the middle of a series called Welcome to the Resistance, and we've been talking about rediscovering Jesus' ancient calling of disciples making disciples. In fact, the way I'm saying it is to help people far from God become disciples of Jesus who spend the rest of their lives helping people far from God become disciples of Jesus. And a lot of people, uh, based on last week, are thinking this is something new. This is like some new thing. When in reality, it is a rediscovery of something old. And so to get us pumped up about bringing back something that has been lost, I actually started making some phone calls this week. I started making phone calls to see if I could get a singing group that is known around the world for their angelic voices, for bringing audiences to rapturous delight, performing for standing ovations from Paris to Istanbul to Beijing. So you'll want to get your cell phones out because God has answered our prayers and has brought to the CCV stage for the very first time. Believe it or not, we actually have, please welcome for the very first time, the Ragtime Pastors. We're bringing sexy back. We're bringing sexy back. Bringing sexy back. Bringing sexy back. Bringing sexy back. back. The mother All boys the mother don't know boys how to it's special, special behind your back. We're behind your back. So here we go. I'll pick up the slack. Sexy back. Take it to the bridge. Flirty babe. You stole my heart. I let you get away. If you don't like it, you don't have to stay. It's just that no one makes me feel this way. Take it to the chorus. Come here, girl. Come to the back. VIP. Drinks on me, let me see what you're twerking with. Look at those hips, you make me smile. Come here, child, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Go and be gone with it, get your sexy on. Sexy back, we're bringing sexy back, bringing sexy back, bringing sexy back. You know, we're bringing sexy back. You believe that? Well, that's what we're doing. We are bringing discipleship back and making it sexy again. And you came on a great day uh, because whether you're a Christian or not, been following for a long time or not, I want to talk to you about how transforming your job from like blah to an adventure. And uh, to get us started, I'm going to tell you about something I do. For the longest time, uh, whenever I'm with, uh, gosh, someone in a checkout line, or I'll be walking with a CFO down their hallway, I've been meeting all kinds of different situations, I will simply ask the same question. I will ask them, do you like your job? Now, let me ask you that right now. Do you like your job? I was asked you, do you like your job? You know, do you love your job? Do you, uh, do, or do you get up in the morning and you're like, I cannot wait to get to my job. Now, um, 
what percentage of people over the years do you think have told me that they love their job? Uh, this is anecdotal, but of all the people that have answered this question, what percentage do you think have come back and said, I love my job? 50%? Higher? 80%? 90? Okay. I, my estimation is, again, this is anecdotal, 5%. 5%. Now, um, I, I am um, pretty sure that these people are the same people who also don't need coffee in the morning. Do you know these people? Right? I don't know how many of you have seen this, uh, this, this, uh, this meme that says there are two types of people in the morning. Take a look at this. I love this right here. Two types of people in the morning. There's this kind of person. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done, right? And uh, undoubtedly, those people are like, I love my job. I love my job. This, this kind of people. Um, uh, but in my experience, 95% uh, respond one of two ways. When I ask them the question, do you like your job, what do you think the two most common responses have been throughout 30 years of asking this? They always say, um, it's okay. And then the biggest one is, it's a job. Now, here's the thing. This is exactly what you would expect non-believers to say, right? Last week, if you were here, we talked about how the Gospel of Matthew in the fourth chapter introduces the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we talked about how Satan controls everything that is a part of this world. Satan controls people. Satan controls government. Satan controls economic systems. Satan controls culture. And worst of all, Satan controls the New York Yankees and uh, (laughs) controls it all, right? So the Bible tells us that the reason Jesus came to earth was to take the world back from the control of Satan. And and trust me, I know that a lot of you in the room are like, I don't even know if I believe in that kind of thing. Okay, well, just hang with me. I totally get that. Right before Jesus started his ministry, Satan came to Jesus and made him an offer. Here's the offer in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It says, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and looked at him and said, All of this, the people, the governments, the culture, money, all of it, I'll give it to you if you'll bow down and worship me. What do you think Jesus said? We all know what he said. Away from me, Satan. Because I did not come to bow down to you. I came back to take people from your power. Now, here's the thing. I go to all of that to say this. You expect non-believers not to be happy in their jobs. You expect it. Because you expect them not to be happy in virtually all parts of their life. The sad thing isn't that non-believers hate their jobs. The sad thing is that many Christians hate their jobs. And it's sad because they've never discovered what we're going to look at this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Matthew to verse 17. We're talking about in the series about how Jesus is building a resistance movement that shines a light into the darkness and wins people back from the power of darkness. And this week we're going to talk about rejecting the shadow calling of work. Now last week, if you weren't here, I talked about how when I meet Christians, so many Christians tell me, I'm into God. I'm fully in. I'm like 100%. You know, chips are all in. But I don't know what I want. I don't know what I should do. I'm praying that God would show me what I'm supposed to do. 
I have these conversations in the hallway all the time. And I'm like, it should be obvious, right? Because the problem is in their mind, I'm talking about committed lifelong Christians, is in their mind there are two callings. The first calling is there's like the church stuff. Attend services, be a better person, get money, serve occasionally, get friends involved. But eventually you get to the point there's got to be more than this. Certainly Jesus did not come and die on the cross just to be a spectator. And so a lot of these people then will talk to their non-Christian friends. And their non-Christian friends then will give them advice on the right-hand side. They're like, well, you need to do something that scares you. Or you need to make a difference. Or you need to follow your bliss. Or give back to the community. Or leave the world a better place. All fine things. But it misses the point. It misses the point. And so what happens is, when people don't understand why Jesus came, what he's calling us to do, we end up pursuing what I call shadow callings. A shadow calling is a lifelong preoccupation with something that doesn't matter. This week, we're talking about the shadow calling of work. So look in verse 17. Matthew's gospel begins this way. It says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I want you to see the picture here. Jesus is individually walking up to people in the Sea of Galilee, on the shore's edge, looking at them and saying, I want you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Do me a favor, lean over to the person next to you and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Do that real fast. Look at them. Okay, now, for those of you who didn't do that, lean over to them and say, repent, because, anyway, no. But he'd do that. He would literally walk up to people and say, I I want you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, two things. First of all, what does repent mean? What does it mean to repent? Now, in evangelical Christian terminology, repent, according to 21st century Christian, means to tell God you're sorry for something you did so you feel better about yourself, and now you know that everything's cool with God and we'll send you to hell. That's essentially what we've learned in church. Repentance in Jesus' terms is not that. Repentance, according to Jesus, means to forsake anything that stands in the way of joining Jesus' mission to liberate those held captive by Satan. If Jesus came up to you and said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, and you're like, nah, bro, seriously, I, I got other stuff to do, he would look at you and say, now that is someone who's putting whatever that thing is before me. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, a guy comes up and he's like, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he's like, listen, you know, let the debt, you know, but my father, I I, got to hang with him. He's he's an old age. And Jesus said, what? Let the dead bury their debt. Now, here's the thing. His father was probably in his mid-30s. Not talking about an old man. He's talking about priorities. Now, what does the kingdom of heaven mean? The kingdom of heaven is a a monarchical term. Like, did you watch the royal wedding? How many of you watched the royal wedding? How many of you are too prideful to admit that you spent a half a day on Saturday reading through CNN and watching the royal wedding? My favorite part was when Chicago pastor Michael Curry 
preached his wedding sermon. Am I the only one that when he preached was like, yeah, we won, we won. We're the best. We are the best of those boring Brits, right? And uh, for Jesus' listeners, uh, a king kind of language made sense. Now, when you hear the kingdom of God, I want you to think Jesus calling people to break their allegiance to Satan and place themselves under God's rule. Don't think kingdom, king, think kingship. Placing yourself under the rule of someone. Now, so Christians who haven't placed themselves fully under God's rule are pursuing a shadow calling with their life. It seems important. It seems to provide meaning. But it's something ultimately that doesn't matter. Now, look at verse 8. This is a perfect example of this happening. It says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. Now, it was customary in Jesus' time for people who are rabbis to have people come up and ask to be their disciples. Jesus went to people and modeled for us calling people to be our disciples. Now, this kind of seems like a scene out of Forrest Gump. You know, Jesus walks up to these two brothers, and he's like, I want you to follow me. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and they just went off. The reality is it wasn't, it wasn't really like that. More than likely, these were friends. Like, he already knew them. The second thing is that there's a, there's a, there's a major misconception about what was really going on in the story. And the misconception was this, is that Simon, Peter, and Andrew never made money from fishing again. It's like they left their nets, and I'm never doing that again. When in reality, all that meant was they're leaving it as a full-time business. More than likely, they're leaving it to other family members or their coworkers. But they still, as Craig Keener said, a New Testament scholar, more than likely, they went back to fishing from time to time to make a little bit of money, to make some extra cash. Like Jesus and his followers traveled by boat constantly. Guarantee they had nets in that boat, and then they would fish. Jesus and his followers would go and they would travel and start churches. Guarantee Peter and Simon used fishing to make a little bit of extra money. In fact, we know there was a time or two in the Gospels after this incident where we see Simon and we see Andrew fishing. Here's the thing I want you to see in this passage. Jesus is not calling us to quit our jobs. Otherwise, all of us would not be able to eat. The Apostle Paul tells us, if you won't work, you will not eat. Jesus is not calling us to quit our jobs. Jesus is calling us to redefine the purpose of our work. When we repent and shift our allegiance from Satan to God, we stop working to make money and we start working to fish for people. The money is simply a byproduct of the opportunity that God has given us to go to work and find people who are in the darkness and bring them into the light. Jesus said, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields on your jobs. They're ripe for harvest. When was the last time you talked to someone and they were like, man, I just hate my job. I need a new job. i got to quit my job. I talk to Christians all the time at this church. They're like, man... Can you pray for me? I need a new job. And I'll ask, 
why what's going on at your job that you need me to pray about. And it's the same list. Ah, my boss is terrible. My boss is mean. Or the people at work are mean. They're not Christians. They have different values. People are slandering you and talking behind your back. You just don't feel valued. On and on and on. And they say, will you pray? I'm like, no. God has already answered your prayer. You're in the perfect job for a Christian. In fact, after he called Simon and and Andrew, a little bit later, in the fifth chapter of Matthew, he said this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The only time Jesus wants you to move out of a job like that is when everybody's already a Christian. If you're having problems at work and people are mean and your boss is terrible, this is why Jesus said you're going to be persecuted. Blessed are you when people mistreat you. Why? Because they mistreated me, my followers, and the prophets, and they're going to do it to you. Blessed are you because of the opportunity you've been given to impact these people in their lives. If you leave that job, who's going to go there? It's like if you take all the Christian kids out of the schools, who's going to reach those kids? Our jobs go from blah to an adventure the moment we repent of simply viewing a job as something to make money and to make us happy. And we start viewing it as a mission field to reach people. Last week we talked about how Jesus' strategy for the insurrection is very simple. He called people in darkness to repent. He chose 12 of them to come and follow him. For three years he trained them to love God, love each other, love lost people. And then he sent them out to replicate what they experienced. The very last thing he said is, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations who will then keep making disciples. Here's the thing. There is no plan B when it comes to reaching the world. There's no plan B to reaching your neighbors and friends and relatives. We is the plan. There is no plan B. You leave that job... There is no guarantee there is ever going to be a Christian that's going to go to that place again and share the good news of Jesus and call people to repentance, bringing them out of the darkness, knocking over their speaker stands. This is not going to happen. When my middle daughter was in high school, um, there was a guy that was in her class that was just an amazing athlete. Um, But he had trouble at home. He had trouble at school. He had trouble with the law. And it was, it was sad. You know, it came from a home where there was just a lot of pain, and so he was in pain. You know, if the soil in which a plant is plotted, plotted is, is fraught with a lot of pain, don't expect the, the flower coming out of that to, to reflect anything other than what it came from. The principal of the school is a friend of mine, and I was just talking to him one day. I was like, Pat, I was like, so what, what you know, when did you see this? 
He said, oh, no, we, we saw this about seventh, eighth grade. Now, time out from this story. Who in this room has the ability to help young boys become strong Christian men? Who? Don't, don't raise your hand, but who has that ability? Like, you have the ability to look at a young kid in seventh grade and you're able to look past the bravado, you're able to look past the language, the behavior, the par- all this kind of stuff. And you're able to see a kid that is in pain, that needs a mentor, and that needs loving. Who has the ability to grab one of those kids, pour your life into that kid, and four years later you're wondering, oh my gosh, look at what happened to this person. There are a lot of people that have the ability to do that. Can you imagine what would happen if just 10 men that have the ability to take boys to men, forgive the band reference, but to take boys to men, right? To create men. To be able to take 10 of these guys in our church to pull together 12 young men like this and to be with them for four years. Imagine what could happen. Now I want you to fast forward then. 30 years from now, when those boys actually are men, they get married and they have kids, okay? There are the, there are the boys that get married, then they have, they have kids. I want you to imagine what their kids are like and what they're feeling about the future, the ones who haven't been reached and discipled. And I want you to imagine the kids of these kids who have been, who've grown up in homes where they have been mentored by fathers who love God. Can you imagine the difference? Now, why isn't this happening? In part because some people are like, well, I don't know if it's this opportunity. I certainly would have done that, and I, and I certainly get that. But on a large scale, this is happening all over the place. Why isn't this happening with Christian men in our church? I think there are two reasons. Number one, because CCV men who are most capable of doing this Worship their work rather than Jesus. I don't have time to do that. I'm busy. I'm busy. You don't have time? Oh, trust me. Trust me. You know you have time to do whatever you want to do. Let's call it it what it is. You're a sellout. You're pursuing your shadow calling of making money and work. You have these amazing gifts and abilities, and you're wasting your time on stuff that doesn't matter. Or worse, number two, the CCV Christian men who are most capable of doing this keep joining Bible study groups to keep talking about the stuff they should be doing. Now, there's certainly a time to be learning about the Bible Jesus spent three years with people who just became followers. But let me just put it out there like this. If you've been a Christian for three years or more, and you just keep signing up to be in Bible studies, there's something wrong with your walk with God. I want you to imagine if we offered a jogging class here at CCV. Put the word out there. We're going to have a jogging class. A lot of people were like, listen, I want to get in shape 
and Jesus is going to help me because we're going to do a jogging class at the church. So we have 60 people show up at classroom one in the kids' building up on the second floor. We've got the projector there. We've got the seats set up. People show up. They have their jogging gear on, right? They're ready to rock and roll. Let's do this. We're going to meet up here. And they're like, oh, 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 we're going to sit down and have a lecture, right? And then the teacher says, good news. Today what we're going to talk about is why jogging? And they have a 60-minute lecture where they have handouts. And they come back the next week and talk about the psychological benefits of jogging. The third week, the physiological benefits. The fourth week, the family dynamic benefits of jogging. Fifth week, the funny. You get to the eighth week, and finally someone gets brave enough. Hey, real quick, are we ever going to jog? Are we ever going to jog? Enough with the Bible study. We need Bible obedience. Imagine a strong, one strong Christian couple that said, I'm going to pour myself just into 12 non-believing couples of the roughly 500 non-believing couples that are connected to our church. I'm just going to take 12. And over three years, a period of time, can you imagine how those homes and those family environments would change in three years? And then they repeated it, and then they repeated it, and they repeated it. I want you to look at the math here. If one disciple of Jesus gathered and discipled 12 people for three years, just like Jesus, and then repeated this for 30 years, that's 120 fully mature, world-changing disciples of Jesus. Now imagine if these 120 people repeated the process of what you did with them. Within 60 years, you will have impacted 14,400 people. And so the option is, do you want to keep being a fisherman or do you want to start fishing for people? Um, today at the door as people were coming in, uh, you were greeted by uh, this lady right here, Pat Shiflett. Uh, can you put her picture up? There's Pat. Everyone know Pat? Um, uh, she is at the door. Are you here, Pat? Or are you in the back? All right. Good, because uh, I was going to make fun of your age. So, um, <laughs> Pat, uh, uh, when we broke ground here at our church when there was nothing but dirt, um, I asked Pat who was the oldest member at the time, and then we had our youngest member at the time um, put a shovel on the ground and take a picture. That was before there was even one building here. This was back in 2005. Since that time, as a retiree, Pat has continued to lead multiple groups here at CCV. She was handing out this little invitation at the door, which I took great offense at. said, uh, you are invited to enjoy potluck. Um, the Joy Group would like you to join us for Food, Fun, and Fellowship. That's a great way to meet other CCVers who are 50-ish. Come on! People in that group are like 80. I can't go to that group. Come on. Here's why I wanted to show you Pat's picture. Can you show her a picture up there again? I think people think that this is like some 
extra super spiritual thing that you got to go to 12 years of seminary and you got to understand Hebrew and that sort of thing. God has called you and gifted you to change people's lives. And you can do this. The fishermen that he gathered were just simple people who were a cross-section of people of every day. But yet they ended up changing the world because they refused to be spectators. Now, my wife last week said, I think you underestimate the fact that there are people who are incredibly committed, but they just don't know how to do this stuff. Like me, and she started listing stuff. And I, that's a good point. And our job is to train you. There are incredibly complex things that you're going to face. As a disciple, for instance, a disciple maker. Jesus, when he interacted with people that are far from God, did three things. He called them to repent, he healed them, and he delivered them from the power of Satan. I'm of the conviction that Christians should stop using as the default every single time you meet someone that is having a problem in their life, stop telling them to go to counseling. I am a huge advocate of counseling. But your job as a disciple of Jesus is to do what he taught his disciples to do. And there are some people who are having life-controlling behaviors and addictions and issues that are under the power of Satan. And you need to be able to deliver them from that, as weird and strange and scary as that sounds, because their heads are going to start spinning backwards, and they're going to... I'm just kidding. Um, but they're, it's scary. But what do we do as Christians? You keep sending them a counseling. They don't need counseling. They need you to deliver them. They need you to heal them. They need you to pray for them. Problem is, it has to be taught. It has to be modeled. So there's some decisions I'd like to call everyone to make this morning. The first is, for those of you who have viewed up to this point your work, as, let's be honest, it's like the most important thing in your life. What would happen if you stayed at that job, but you just shifted why you went to that job? Suddenly now you're viewing it as an opportunity to influence people. Maybe you need to repent this morning. There's a second group, those of you who are here who have not made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life. In your program, there's one of these cards. Next week, we're going to have a baptism service in the service. And for those of you who have not yet to be baptized, baptized by immersion, where you're lowered in the ground, symbolizing the leaving of your life, and then you're brought up as a brand new person, as Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new is here. And if you would like to experience that, I'd like for you to fill out this card during a communion service. And as you're leaving, I want you to fold it in half and drop it in the bowl. But there are some people that are here, and you're like, I, um, I have life-controlling stuff. Can't stop drinking. I can't stop taking drugs. Can't stop cutting. Can't stop doing this and this and this and this and this. Man, by all means, please, avail yourself of the Christian counselors that we have here. 
but first talk to the people who, are, who can pray for you. Talk to some of the pastors that are here. Talk to some of your group leaders that are here. Talk to some of the leaders that are here. No one should be under the control of anything. No one should be under the power of anything other than Jesus. No one should compulsively be doing something that the Spirit doesn't lead them to do. And I just want you to know there's freedom. There's wholeness available for everyone. And so whatever decision that you are making here this morning, during our current time of communion, I want you to do that. So in a moment, the ushers are going to come. They're going to pass the trays. We want you to take a piece of bread. We want you to take a piece, take a cup and hold on to them. And after everyone has been served, we'll take it together. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.